Hi everyone, it's your host Mandy Bynum. Welcome to another episode of Equality Matters from the Race Equality Project. Today I have the honor and pleasure of speaking to none other than Joshua Encarnacion. Joshua is a multi-hyphenate tech industry leader, for real. He's an executive coach, he's a consultant, he's a talent and growth specialist, and he's a founding teammate and former CEO of Alco, which is an online curriculum that equips software engineers of all skill levels in preparing for the technical interview process. He spent time building technical learning and development programs at Uber and Google, where he also served as a technical recruiter. Joshua is doing the real work of evolving and creating a more inclusive and equitable entry process for people of color who are looking for engineering roles and opportunities in tech. Not only has he built and grown amazing programs for engineers, he's still under the age of 30. He's a badass. Uh, I always have such a fun time talking to Joshua. Today, we go deep into the nuanced inequities within the tech industry and how we got to the state we're in now, and how the Silicon Valley startup tech scene continues to seem impenetrable if you're on the quote-unquote outside. We talk about how communication and language within the tech industry acts as a serious barrier to entry, and how a a fairly simple process of hiring engineers can be so discriminatory, simply because we aren't paying attention to the norms and dominant culture that we're conditioned by. Uh, And most importantly, we get vulnerable around how we've had to code switch in our own careers within our industry and how we deal with our own identity struggles around the roles we play and the positions that we're in that have inevitably widespread impact. Um, But, you know, at the same time, while these topics are incredibly important and serious, we still have a ton of fun as always. So I'm excited to have you have a listen. Just so I have it perfect, it's Joshua Incarnacion. Yeah, that's perfect. That's actually yes. more perfect than I think I've ever heard people say. <laughs> Andy, I'm so serious. That just made the 10 times better. I love rolling my R's, so it's... <laughs> oh, that was awesome. Okay, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for the Race Equality Project. Uh, my guest today is Joshua Incarnacion. Uh, and Joshua, I remember seeing you at the Code 2040 conference in 2018. I think it was the opening panel on like the, I, I was about to go into the role or I just started the role of head of diversity at my company. And y'all were talking about like how difficult this job was. And I was like, son of a, here we go. Am I ready for this? And I remember thinking like, this dude's got pizzazz. I should really know him. Um, and like, you have a really cool story. But one story that I believe should not be as unique as it is in our industry, um, which both excites me and I'm like, why Why do we not have more Joshua's? Like why? It really bothers me. Um, so uh, from you today, I would love to hear a little bit about your story. I know you have a ton of content on the internets. And I think that if people just go to your LinkedIn page, they can see that amazing three-minute minute video from LTX Fest. Congrats, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that's a really cool video on your story. And and I guess um, if you can give us the 
the Cliff Notes version of how Joshua got to where he is today, that would be helpful. But like, but like, you know, the race equality kind, not like the one you might do at like the Salesforce equity equity conference. Got it. Got it. You know what I'm saying? Yep. I hear you. I mean, you want me to keep it real. Um, yeah. So how'd I get here? Uh, well, I was born in Manhattan, New York, <laughs> raised by a single mother born in Queens, New York. We moved to Lawrence, Massachusetts, where almost every Dominican American, whether or not they're straight from the island or first generation, ends up moving to at some point. There's a lot of history and background and context as to why that happens that I learned later in life. Uh, and later in life, what I was able to do is actually make it to college, which for folks like myself is actually a ginormous feat. I was the first person in my family to actually be part of a campus experience. And that campus was the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, where I studied engineering for the first two years and then switched over to human resources when I realized I don't have to be an engineer to be part of the tech industry. And I think because I learned that so early on, I was able to take advantage of that insight throughout my career, which has brought me to do work for Google, Uber, and three hyper-growth startups, one of which I played a role in building um, alongside the original founding team. And so those startups, Ernest Inc., which was a financial tech company, doing student loan refinancing, working towards building the bank of the future and however they define that. We grew from 60 to 200 in my time there. Simply Business, which is an insure tech company, originally located in the UK, acquired by Travelers Insurance to then build out essentially the like Uber model of small to medium business insurance, which is a click of a button, have small to medium business owners insure their business. Mm-hmm. That grew from 20 to 120 in my time there. And then Alco, which I recently served as the CEO, we started in 2015. And what that business did was reverse engineer the technical interview process, primarily for software engineers. And in reverse engineering the process, out of frustration, like out of sheer frustration, three engineers were pissed off that computer science fundamentals take more weight over actual hard coding and programming. And then myself as a technical recruiter for Google and Ernest, I was like, hold on, wait a minute. What we ask people in the interview process almost has nothing to do with what they do on their job. And so if you do not have the insights into what the interview process is like or who designed them or played a role in designing them or have been trained on how they were designed, you basically are shooting in the dark. And for someone with the last name Encarnacion, uh, that is very frustrating because that means that not only are really talented, smart, borderline genius candidates getting rejected, people with backgrounds like mine, born in New York, raised by a single mother from an immigrant family that can consider themselves Black and Hispanic, and even if you add another layer there and just say Black or not be a male, right? Uh-huh. A male dominated world. Um, you set, tend to realize like <clears throat> because of that lack of training or that lack of accessibility or lack of democratization of the knowledge needed to navigate the technical interview process or just the interview process in tech companies in general, 
you basically index for screening people out that consider themselves black, brown, or are just not men. And so I worked really hard to be intentional around the way that I would provide this training for the 2,000 clients that went through the Alco program, but also just with anyone in general that I came in contact with. And so that's kind of the journey for me and how I got to be, I guess, who I am today and who I'm learning to be. But I hope that answers your question. It does. And I love the the vulnerable part at the end that says who you're learning to be. Um, and as you're talking, I just think like everything you're saying rings so, so very true that I don't even know what question to ask next. I feel like we could just end the interview there. I think as, as an Aquarius uh, talking to a Gemini, and this is for those of you who don't know astrology, uh, Aquemini or not Aquemini, Aquariuses and Geminis are both air signs. Uh, Gemini is super windy. Aquarius is like a freaking hurricane. And so when we get together, it's just like, (laughs) that noise noise is actually what I feel when we hang (laughs) up. But like all the stuff that you're saying, it's just, um, I was talking to someone earlier today who started um, a finance business from basically uh, creating call center teams in the Philippines and talk about non-traditional background when you get into finance and uh, uh, I can't, I don't even know the words that describe what he actually does. Uh, but basically he works with a lot of money uh, with very traditional practices within the finance industry, which is so fraught with bias. It is unbelievable. Um, and I think it's a great example of how ingrained um, some of the, well, all of the industries in our country and our society are just seeped in racism on top of racism on top of oppression to the point where like you don't even recognize it anymore and for our industry in the tech industry it's it's so fascinating because our industry started from from reading um brotopia emily chang's book the internet started in the way that it went around is a bunch of dudes sent around a picture of like a half naked lady just to like make sure that the internet was working and like, that's why we got to where we are when even before that, like most of the engineers and mathematicians were women. And it's, it's so interesting to think about the context by which we got here and, and the way you talk about um, how people have access to the tech industry is just so freaking bonkers because it's really not that difficult and it shouldn't be that inaccessible, but yet the structure that was built around keeping it insular has been so pervasive that it's so hard to dismantle. It feels like sometimes. Yep. 100%. Like palpably, palpably hard, right? Like people, it's, yeah, I mean, you worded it perfectly. And what I see day in and day out is this emotional roller coaster, like on level 100, when you talk about the tech industry for people that haven't been part of a tech company. Mm-hmm. And I feel when you're on the inside, it's almost like a rite of passage to forget that that's the experience. Mm-hmm. You can fit in and you can let go of the cognitive dissonance from the outside. And I think like 
making the conscious effort or being aware enough to make the choice to live between the two experiences and holding on to them is like something to be applauded. But it's like, why is that the work? Why do you have to live with both the pain and the, I don't even know how to describe like accepting the accomplishment, maybe I don't accepting mm-hmm. the, the luck of the draw that you're in the industry. Yeah. Uh, to be able to relate to people that are not going to have access and communicate. Yeah. And I, I, I thought, I think the reason I reached back out to you again is because I met with someone um, who I met over LinkedIn and, and over uh, mutual friends who told me she was looking to get into tech. And this woman had probably built three businesses, had four kids and was like, couldn't figure out how to get into tech, but she kept calling it tech. And I'm like, where, where have we gone wrong? Where this brilliant, as you mentioned, like borderline genius person can't figure out how to get in. And like the only way she can imagine to get in is like via one of the big companies via like some entry level position. Like that is some horse shit. And I was so, so mad. And I, um, it would be, I would love to, you know, get some validation and understand like what, how that informed your process um, while at Outco and like re-engineering or reverse engineering the whole process of like what, I guess the way I was marketing you and Outco was um, they basically take, and this is not the best way to say it. I was like, they take rejects who've tried to apply to ad tech companies and like teach them the, the game essentially on how to get back in, which is like, a, not accurate to what you do, I don't think, but, uh, but like really hard to describe that that's the work that is happening. So there's definitely two things I want to dive deep into. One, the framing for the Alco piece, which thank you, because that's exactly how people perceive us, like the rejects that we then get back in, which isn't unfair in the sense that that's how the industry codes everything, right? Mm-hmm. Like the bar, right? The hiring bar. If you're under the hiring bar, then you're essentially a reject. Like, I was talking to a part uh, industry partner just the other day that works for a major tech company, and they were saying like, our apprenticeship program has a certain level bar, and you know the talented or the talent that doesn't meet that bar, you know they're gonna need some work, right? Like, so we're we're gonna have to think of creative ways to allow them to exist in this space. What? Oh man. And that, that all of that is just seeped in racism and, and like systemic oppression, colonialism, whatever you want to, however, whatever lens we want to look at this from, like, where did you get this imaginary bar from? And when does it go from like expectations to communication issues? Because if the bar is we have a certain set of expectations for how people produce, okay, then explain those. But if the bar is we communicate a certain way and because said person doesn't have the same language set that we do, we're going to think of you as lesser than or a reject. And that's fucked up. Yeah. And that, so like being able to think of both of those, those frame of minds, like, okay, expectations is one thing. So in a 40 hour work, we should be able to do these things. And then in the same, in the same vein, like how we communicate our language, right. Which creates like, our ability to collaborate and to exist in this space is designed so that if you don't have it, 
you are considered lesser than. If you do have it, you are considered to par. Then how do we make that language accessible? And on top of that, if you do speak the language too well, it's like, wait a second. Hold up. How do you know all this? Right. You're so articulate. What? (laughs) Oh, God. Such a trigger. Such a trigger. Get out of here. (laughs) It makes me think of Trevor Noah and how much he talks about the importance of language. And I, I've been thinking about this over the last over the summer because now that I get to choose who I work with and who I speak to and 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 who my clients are, I am noticing so much more that because I'm out, I'm not in a company and inside that community. I'm hearing so many different ways in which people communicate, in which so many people create in and out groups, and how pervasive it is and how easy it is to do it. And how much of a long-term impact that has when you're not paying attention to it. So much, so much. And that's the the critical part is what you said last, paying attention to it. Again, it's like so easy to just forget that we learned a lot of this language and a lot of it is foreign to us. It's not native. Like when I'm back in New York, like I don't speak like this at all. (laughs) Like born in, born in Manhattan, New York, raised in the projects in Brooklyn. Like you kidding me? Like, I say dead ass immediately when I get to New York. Like, I don't know where it comes <laughs> from. It just comes out. I'm just like a dead ass. But, like, uh, every, right, so to tie that point around the language piece, like, and and bring this back to the original point you made on, around Alco and how it's marketed. Um, So for software engineers in specific, and I'll zoom out, right? But for software engineers in specific, they write code, but the interview process the language set that you need to have made accessible to yourself is computer science, data structures, algorithms. And everyone knows, like 25 years of experience in the industry as a software engineer, which means you were probably like the first one. And you know that computer science fundamentals isn't going to determine how good of a job you do building someone's applications building someone's database, network systems, whatever it may be. Like how efficient you're coded, how how fast you can write the code doesn't correlate with your computer science fundamentals. It's just a language you learn. And right now, the best way to learn it is to be part of a four-year institution that focuses in on computer science. Mm-hmm. Unless you read Cracking the Coding Interview, which is a 1,200-page book that also helps you think through computer science, uh, the way that the interview process is designed. Outside of that, you're left in the dark. So if you're part of a boot camp, if you're self-taught, if you learned how to code in a non-traditional sense, and that word is relevant to the people that design these interview processes, right? Non-traditional. And you're kind of in the dark. You're like, well, I mean, I'm really, I've built these web apps. I've built pages. I've built like applications that have scaled. I've worked at other companies. Why can I not pass this interview process? What is it about matrices, trees, linked lists, graphs that separates me from a person that I know I'm better than? Mm-hmm. Really, it's just the language and the language barrier that they set up because it's transactional and obje- quote unquote objective. So right. I can tell you if you got that problem wrong, but I can't tell you if your code is good or not because a lot of it is ambiguous. And oh, by the way, while we're working, we Google search most of the stuff that we need to know, or we go to um, Stack Overflow 
to copy somebody else's code or learn from someone else's code, which just means copy. Um, mm-hmm. we, we figure it out on the on the job, like which leads the primary skill being communicating with your teammates. So yeah. that's that's in that experience, right? And so then what what a reject is, or like what our clients or customers or candidates would have been at Alco, which by the way I'm no longer there for yeah, yeah. Thing, right. Is people that didn't take the time to study their computer science fundamentals. The other half of the equation, which is relevant to everyone, not just software engineers, is emotional intelligence. Mm. And that you probably don't have to necessarily have if you are a white cis hetero male. Exactly. Because you won't be as you won't be cut as deep when you get a rejection letter because you know in your mind, oh well there's another train coming. Mm-hmm. I've literally heard that phrase. Yeah, that's no big deal. Whereas for some people it's like they're holding on to that one potential acceptance as a place to validate themselves and hold their yeah. self worth. Talk to me more about coding boot camps and I, I equate it to um, like SD, coming from a sales background, I equate it to SDR boot camps. And I think that's kind of our, our next available mechanism through which to get diversity into a sales organization, because uh, most of the sales careers for underrepresented people lay in very traditional practices like real estate, which is also seeped in so many problematic things. Um, and, and tech sales, I, I feel like again, is so language outing. Um, and I, I wonder like, what does that look like for boot camps, and what makes certain boot camps successful or unsuccessful um, when seeking to create equity? Yeah, I think it really is in the person that designs the boot camp. <laughs> I'm going to leave it right there because if the coding boot camp is designed by somebody that can empathize with the people that are often excluded, then they're going to think about the again, quote unquote edge cases, because that's language in the tech world that's not accessible. Mm-hmm. Um that paint the person's experience in a certain light. So i I'm 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 gonna read something really quickly that like was sent to me not too long ago by someone that's looking for a job in tech, right? This person wants to break into tech. They're a data analyst at a big tech company now, but they can't break into tech. Huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I see all just up and in. Okay. So they're a data analyst at a big tech company. They can't break into tech. Personally, I do not necessarily have the experience of a traditional candidate working at a tech company. I do not have the traditional tech background. A disclaimer, I'm working at X big tech company, but only in a contract position to help with an ongoing project. I work several hours a week when I'm needed. And then I also do a couple projects on the side proactively. Furthermore, I'm from the Bay Area and aspire to work at the te- at a big tech company. I want to be able to be part of the community that is shaping our lives, which I think is tech. These companies have influenced so much of my life, politically, economically, displacement, innovation, whatever it may be, and I would like to be part of the conversation. I've applied multiple times to multiple companies for multiple roles, and unfortunately, all I've been receiving is we decided to go with another candidate. I feel like I'm not even taken into consideration, to be honest, and it's depressing. 
being a first-gen Latina college student, right, recent grad, it's been difficult because I cannot rely on my parents or relatives to connect me with a job. And I do not have an extensive support network I can reach out to for employment leads. But this is not an excuse. I'm not going to stop. Every day is an opportunity. I'll continue applying. And I can't afford to give up. How is this person writing this while at a tech company as a data analyst? Oh, my gosh. So, like, when I think of these boot camps, right, these accelerator programs that are designed to get people from point A to point B in a short amount of time, what I think is often missing is these boot camps index on these technical skills that you can essentially learn online for free. Mm. Like a lot of coding languages are now being taught for free online. Mm-hmm. A lot of tech tools, everything from learning SQL all the way through to Python. Mm-hmm. And anything from like systems thinking in a database to data visualization and using numbers to tell a story. It's all online for free. Mm-hmm. But these boot camps will condense that curriculum two months, three months, six months, and give you the proper, quote unquote, proper guidance to be able to digest the material. But the person that's helping you, the facilitator, may or may not be able to resonate with your personal experience. So they may or may not know what you're actually going through internally. And Mm. to me, those boot camps that are successful are the ones that are being facilitated by people that know what someone is experiencing internally because they understand where they came from and the journey that they've traveled, the distance that they've traveled. Yeah. And do you think how much of this is a white savior complex issue? Oh man, I trigger. Um, <laughs> um, let me see. Let me give you a square number. Ninety-nine point nine percent of it. Okay. <laughs> that- and and there's probably some monetization goal, I would imagine. Oh, I mean that's that's typically the motive, right? How do we monetize this? That's the, yeah. that's, that's the golden question. And it goes back again to awareness. Around equity. It's so easy. It's so easy to perpetuate it thinking that you're doing the right thing. Yeah. And I feel like that is the history of our world. It's like, how easy is that for people to realize in your mind? Or or do you, is there a point at which in your working relationships, you're like, I this is a line where I know you won't get it. You don't know that you don't get it. And you might not like me because I just maybe seem frustrated. Um, But like, what is typically that line for you when someone shows those subtle, but very bright and true colors around what their true intentions are? So when I said like the person I'm learning to become, this is kind of what I was pointing to. So thank you for seeing me and making me feel understood because this question on just gives me the space to continue to develop. Um, I don't think I have the answer because I'm still figuring out where the line is. Mm. I think I measure most of it on a day-to-day basis for myself because some days, and this might be the Gemini thing happening, I have all the energy in the world and I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Let's have the conversation. Because like 
at my core, at my root, I'm like, I'm like that community college professor that's about to mm-hmm. go off moment, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know them. And those are my favorites because they, they care. They have that passion that's like unwavering. Um, but then the other half of me is like, I don't have time to waste because my family is still dead broke. Mm-hmm. Dead ass. <laughs> like <laughs> you know, like like I still have a lot of people to take care of that don't have the same privileges that you do. And for me to provide this level of emotional labor for someone who is rooted, entrenched, dug in, like super committed to a system that wants to erase me and reminds me every day that my existence is resistance. And me being in certain rooms, part of certain conversations, resists, right? Like the attempts, the efforts of majority society to continue to dominate if it hasn't already in most people's experiences um and when i get to that place internally i've now demonstrated to myself the level of control to not blow up Mm -hmm. as i'm exercising my right to choose my words intentionally i'm much more uh, dismissive now than I think I've ever been in the sense that I'm like, okay, well, if I'm feeling feelings that you've given me, I'm going to give them back <laughs> and I'm going to walk away. Um, but should there be days where I'm like, I think you gave me these feelings by accident. I'm going to explain to you your mistake and I'm going to go love the people that deserve it. Um, but I I think if I'm just speaking in like, you know, everyday terms, mm-hmm. I'm tired. Some days I'm not. And I think that's what draws the line for me because I think everyone should be doing their own work to decolonize themselves. I myself know that as a young man, I still have a lot of shit to unpack mm-hmm. in terms of my relationship to whatever patriarchal norms I've adopted. So I'm going to continue doing that. But also as a lighter skinned man in a colorist world, I also pay very close attention to what advantages are afforded to me. Um, Even if, even knowing that I'm just registered as black in every room I'm in. Uh Or not. People are like, look at this black dude. Um, Speaking Spanish or not. (laughs) It's like, look at this black dude. Yeah. Um, and so I still work to unpack a lot of my own stuff. So my my level of expectation for the people around me is just do your own work and openly accept being criticized when you're wrong. And if I catch an ounce of trying to be gaslit, then good luck trying to find me. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, I feel that so viscerally. It 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 literally happened to me like probably yesterday and probably the day before to the point where on Monday it was four o'clock and I got on a call and I was like, yo, it's been a week <laughs> Monday. and it is Monday. And I, and I feel that I think, and that's why kids like us who, you know, are first or second generation into this type of new tech industry 
um, that has, you know, been around. Like my parents were at GE and IBM respectively, which I consider tech companies. IBM was doing some of the most innovative stuff to increase diversity in their industry at the time. And now they're seen as super old fashioned. And like everyone now is trying to do it bigger and better and more performatively. And we are constantly stuck in the middle of that. And uh, uh, I was, I was doing a branding exercise the other day and uh, asking for feedback. I asked people like, what kind of car would I be? And they said, you'd be a BMW SUV, strong, uh, sleek, but often too complicated for what's needed. What? Which I thought was hilarious. I don't know who the person was. I don't know like what their background is, but I thought it was just so poignant because yeah, that's exactly it. Like there's so much about me and about people like me that is so hard to understand that it seems in excess. Mm-hmm. And there's so many ways in which like my expectations are so freaking high that you can't even imagine what they are. <laughs> and so when I'm disappointed in you, it's like, you, it's so hard to understand what that is yet. We have to make the decision to be like, I know that you don't maybe understand what it is that is the mistake that you're making so much so that I don't, I don't even have the words to describe it, but I just know that this pain in my neck is real and it's for a reason. And I got to be out. Yeah. And I can't just sit in it and expect you to, or wait for you to, like walk it back, or expect myself to just like let it pass me. Like it hurts. All right. I mean, that that brings me to a question for you, if you don't mind me asking. I don't. Where do you draw that line, and how how do I how do I get to that level of Jedi? Man, I'm definitely still, still figuring that out. I think, you know, I, I was an athlete growing up, uh, and ev- I was so. I think, and I think you were too. And I, I, until I got out of college, I had been so in tuned with like what my body was telling me for the purposes of performance in a game that when I got out of school, I, I feel like I there were signs that I was starting to ignore. And after a while they were really catching up to me. And I was like, what is going on? I have psoriasis all of a sudden. Like, how have I lost so much weight? Like what is going on with me? And as soon as I started paying attention to them, I was like, Oh, I am being treated like shit at work. I'm anxious all the time. I have the shakes. Um, And like, that is probably something I should pay attention to. And so now when, when those types of things show up in my body, I do pay attention to them and I don't necessarily respond to them right away, but I'm like, okay, this is, I don't, this person's saying something that is triggering me. I'm not going to like respond right away. And I'm going to do my best, like you said, to control the words I'm going to use in response. But sometimes like an F-bomb will come out or I will, I will show a little bit too much emotion because for black women, you can't get me doing that. Um, and so when I get to that point, I have to like take a deep breath and be like, I got to get off the phone um, and like figure out what this is because I have to make a decision on whether or not I want to, whether or not I think my integrity is at risk. And the toughest part, like you said, is like, yeah, I'm trying to buy a house. I'm trying to, 
make a lot of money and I will still, without even knowing it, not even trying, I will always choose integrity first in spite of myself over and over and over. And I think I just have to believe every day that me choosing integrity and choosing positive energy will will reap its rewards in the end. Because if I do it the other way around and I've done it, I feel like I did that all through my twenties. It what it didn't make me happy. And it didn't make me feel fulfilled or feel like I was growing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it. Like choosing our fulfillment, choosing our happiness, and knowing that that energy doesn't necessarily come in abundance. So we gotta protect it. No, dude. It sure doesn't. I, I think the the biggest lesson I learned over the last few years, especially getting into a work that was so personally relevant for me. I mean, before building sales teams, it was all personal because I'm like, I'm the only black person in this room. I'm the only woman in this room and I'm also the boss. And so not only do I have to be uncomfortable, but I also have to hold you to a certain standard. And like, as the only woman in the room or the only black person in the room, like you, those people still hold power over me, even though I'm their boss. And so having, I feel like work has always been super personal, but when I got into doing it full-time, 100%, doing DEI work, that's when I was like, I really got to pay attention because I heard from Joshua Incarnacion at Code 2040 that one day that this work was hard and that it's personal and that is a 24-hour job. I need to make sure I remind myself of that and and not you know be too hard on myself when stuff isn't working at the pace I want it to. It's, it's like we're doing the work with ourselves and then we have to do it for the people around us with or without their awareness. And then we have to give birth to the solutions in a systemic, programmatic, fucking universe-altering way. <laughs> with a really slick deck yeah. for a business case. Like, why do I even need a business case in the first place? Yeah, yeah. And then also, by the way, like, you're asking for a budget? What? <laughs> what do you mean you need money? Like, who, needs, <laughs> who needs money? You kidding me? So you mean we're going to invest in these people with no investment? Oh, wow. Show me how you did that. Whew. I haven't seen someone do it yet. <laughs> like a lot of the a lot of the work in diversity, equity, and inclusion gets put in a box and set to the corner of the office. And that's so unforgiving because it's not necessarily work that you can easily detach from. Mm-hmm. Like Product work, okay, yeah, the button didn't work. We'll work on the button tomorrow. But like somebody's actual trajectory of their lives, oh yeah, we'll just fix that next week. After all the systemic oppression monsters already got them, come on. Like we're we're like constantly racing and running out of air, literally. Like everything that happened this past year, I think people just people I don't think people woke up as much as they realize, like, oh, Black and brown folks can't breathe. Like, yeah, we've been telling you for a long time. So, like, I don't know. I hear it and I I try not to let myself get overwhelmed with the weight of it all. But definitely finding spaces to be able to share authentically, open up genuinely, and, like, express fully what it feels like to have your hands tied behind your back with people asking you not to take the ropes off. Like, Mm -hmm. come on. Like if if we know we have the ex- the lived experience just from looking at us, 
right? Because if you just looked at us, you're already going to say black or brown. So boom, we qualify. That's why you want us to apply for diversity, equity, inclusion roles. Got it. Right. We look the part. Right. So now how are you going to tell us what we do or don't know about an area of expertise you are unwilling to investigate? What? Boom. Ah, it's it's a lot of the a lot of the work. Like one of the questions you asked in the in the in the prep email, like topics to cover, like how does how does this year inform my work as an L and D professional? Yeah. It's funny because nothing has changed for me because personally nothing has changed for me. Uh-huh. If anything, I'm just more in tune with the rate, right? But that doesn't mean that I'm allowed to use it in rageful ways. I never have been able to, especially in L&D work, because we teach. Right. We're teachers and trainers that are trying to systemize, systematize education and like do it in a corporate way. That's, that's it. Whew. It's like, whoa. So like the relationship to me between L&D and DE&I has always been like one in one. Yeah, like absolutely. I'm, I'm teaching. I'm helping people become aware of new ways of working, new language sets, new paradigms of thinking. Like, I think about all those things in relation to this year. I say, yeah, I'm going to continue to try and make human decency accessible through whatever topic I'm teaching, whether it be computer science fundamentals or how to design an onboarding program. Like, neither neither create a space of exclusivity for being a decent human being right like you still need that's the prerequisite for both <laughs> like for, for and, no matter what yeah and it makes me think like the the conversations i've had cuz being head of dni you you obviously have really close relationships with lnd and like i feel like the people team is like the place where <laughs> the place where people go who are who are gluttons for punishment <laughs> mm-hmm. because it's like it's a a it's seen as a cost center full stop so like anything you try to do to improve profitability is seen as like I don't see the connection here like maybe we'll see yeah maybe we'll see profitability from an engagement survey. 12, 12 years out, but like it's, it ain't right in front of me and it's not going to close a deal tomorrow. So like you got to have a better case than that. Then on top of that, you have L and D like how, why would we invest in the education of our people who work for us when they should have come here with education in the first place? Right. Or, or like not even realize that, that, you know, when you t- touch someone's butt, that that's a problem. Right. Um, and then DI on top of that, who is expected to not only educate the L&D people, not only educate the business partners, but like somehow be able to turn them into salespeople <laughs> to like push your program and initiative and make it, make them see what it's in, what's in it for them to the point where they go and fight for budget for it when they already have all their other shit that they're trying to fight for. <gasps> all of it. All of it. But do it yesterday. <laughs> Yeah, dude, it's uh, it's wild. It's wild. It, it's so much. It's so much. Like it again, just all 
it fits under the hierarchy, the priority of the people designing it. Like, mm-hmm. is there can can I unread that the Fortune five hundred list has like maybe four or five black and white CEOs? No, I can't unread that. Like, so then every company that's trying to emulate the Fortune five hundred, like in representation proximity, who is gonna be the, the likely candidate to create the next one? Right. In order for there to be a tipping point like of of serious change, like we have to be at twenty percent. And in order to get to twenty percent representation, like the uphill battle that has been and will continue to be is unreasonable to the point where it is interest it is so interesting and always has always been so fascinating when when leaders talk about the representation data um and how like there's only six percent let's say well there's two percent black people in the entire company and the connection is not made between that and the choices you make on the street when you cross the street, when you see the brown person, or when you see a person who has dark skin and maybe looks like they don't have a home. And like, I, that's the part I have trouble with. Like how, how is that not like one in the same? Yeah. Yeah. Like the diversity hire that we just brought on has a relationship to the black or brown homeless person. You just stepped over to walk into the office. And it's like, wow, that is, again, in inhumane, not human decency. Yeah. That's why I define that. It's like, you can put the dots in a box in your head and open them when you want. Mm. It is the, the whiteness value or U.S. value or whatever you want to call it, you can Google it, of the need to comfort or the right to comfort is so powerful and so easily triggered that it, that it prevents us from making so much progress. And I think uh, the people who I have seen fully activated, meaning my white ally friends who are fully activated, they have gone through the practice over a year or two or a lifetime or whatever to separate themselves and whether or not they're a good person from the ignorant decisions they make. And they are able to forgive them, forgive themselves five times a day because they're more willing to like break things and make mistakes because they know they're being intentional about like, Hey, I'm I'm asking a stupid question here, but is it, they know they're asking a stupid question and it's, you can see in obviously in their actions and in the in their behavior that they care. And that is so easy for us to decipher. And it's it, it's boggling. Like it's not um I think because it is so A, it's easy for us to decipher. B the process of that, like we have to like because you you we were talking about it earlier, the the context shifting that we have to do, like we make these decisions all day long every day of like, okay, today am I gonna be the corporate do-gooder or today am I going to kick some ass? And depending on which one I choose, I might lose my job. Uh, but like when I see like white cis hetero men who, who like have that click, like, okay, this doesn't mean I'm a bad person. This is, this is not necessarily my fault. 
it's so much stuff changes. It's like, oh, duh. Now I see there's profitability behind this. <laughs> like, it's just so obvious. Like, duh, if I get to learn about the numerous experiences of other people, I'm going to be better off. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to be able to design for them. I'm going to be able to market to them. I'm going to be able to sell to them. I'm better be able to. And then if you want to get into the altruistic reasons, you can support them. You can consider them. You can prioritize them. You can center them. Like, no matter what angle you're coming from, it serves us best to use empathy in a way to better position ourselves. And if you want it as a weapon... I hope it's a weapon that allows you to sleep at night. If you want to use it as a saving grace, like then I can imagine you'll feel a lot more fulfilled. And back to that point around being happy, but it's it's just the timeline for certain professionals that just really irks me. Like, mm. like how many lessons must you learn before you realize you're hurting other people? And why is it that... I mean, I know why. Let's not answer the question. But like, why is it that you get so many chances to learn the lesson and we don't? Right? Like, it's like it's it's absurd. Like, survival is so close to being darker skin. And like thriving or living your best life is something reserved for the majority. And I don't even like to say, like, I just like to say the majority because it makes me feel safer. But, like, mm-hmm. it's it's absurd. And so when we think about the work that we're doing, it's almost like reversing that effect, which is not easy. It doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't happen in a measurable way. Like, right. Because even you and I are, as Drake says, we got them LSCs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we benefit from we benefit from all of these systems and i think that's probably part of why we suffer internally so much it's a sense of guilt you have to decouple and it's like a sense of self-acceptance you have to work hard to to be able to exhibit but like i'm right there with you like yeah because i'm so close but so far at the same time i'm in the middle always it's like yeesh. yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, we don't have a ton of time yeesh. Uh, but I do want to ask you one more question. So you have been a CEO, you have built companies at a very fast pace. When, and if you were to do it again, what would the contingencies be? When a couple years from now. Okay. Very good. Software that scales and contingencies, people that do not need to be, Educated in an emotionally laborious way as partners and with an underlying theme of altruistic means and ends. So that way we can realize this idea of doing good work and getting paid for it, but not at the expense of health. Mm. And I say all that, and on, and obviously you can tell I've been thinking about it for a decade. Right? Mm-hmm. This isn't like just Josh saying random shit. This is like the professional in me expressing like what I would like to see 
and what I've been working towards through my career. Because every every effort of a, building a company at hyper growth stage for me was trying to see it happen the right way. And right. I can confidently tell you, I've only seen it happening the wrong way. Right. So like, right. there's a lot there I need to learn from those experiences. And I don't think I yet have given myself the space to, to figure it all out. But along the way, I've continued to help others grow as I grow. And I'm going to continue to do that until I find a space where I'm not compromising who I am. But I'm also building, building in a sense of productivity, but also building the spaces that I wish to see the people that come after me be able to enjoy. And like whether that's my kids or my friend's kids or someone's kids, 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 I think it's only right that if I'm passing through this world, I like continue to push forward what the people that got me here did. That's all I want to do. Mm. Mm-hmm. So if I can do that. I just want to repeat that. Pushing past what the people who came before me had to do. Yeah. Like, I know I didn't just get myself here. I think that, like, I made it complex kind of falls away with <laughs> when you accept being a mature human being. Mm-hmm. but just honoring them in the sense that I want to be able to provide for the people that come next and do it with what I like to do. And for me, like I can confidently say it's working with people, helping people come to an understanding, reading, writing, training, speaking, like whatever it is in that realm of transference of knowledge and awareness, doing that in a systemic way. And why I preface with through software is because that is the quickest way to accelerate some of these intentions. But um, yeah, that's, that's it to me. This has been, I, I think I was, I was anxious before this call because I was like, this is going to be so awesome. I don't even know how awesome it's going to be yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, we only have so much time. I think this we could go on about this for days and I, I guess my one hope is that people actually know what we're talking about right. um, I just hope that that we're at the point where people understand understand and if they don't know then they'll know <laughs> ah when you said hold up wait a minute about 40 minutes ago I was so I was trying so hard not to bust out wait a minute <laughs> Thank you for keeping it real, honestly. (laughs) Like, so much fun. Yeah.